This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we tell the stories of some of the women that have been murdered in Chicago since 2001. Over the past 21 years, Chicago has been haunted by the murders of over 51 women who have been strangled or asphyxiated and were found in abandoned buildings, alleyways, and garbage cans. Some of the women lived high-risk lifestyles, but not all of them. The one thing that they had in common was the way that they died. The police say that these murders are not connected, but many people disagree, and there is a belief that there is a serial killer or multiple serial killers on the loose in Chicago. These murders are unsolved, so if it's not the work of a serial killer, then who killed these women? And why? This is part one. The city of Chicago is a city that is notorious for being one of the murder capitals of the United States. Not unlike most large cities, including the one I live in, Chicago's violence is mostly gun violence. And so it's not hard to see why the murders of 50 mostly Black women would be something that would be ignored. Whenever a Black person is murdered by police, there are always those people who use Chicago as an example of why we shouldn't be outraged. What about Chicago is their favorite thing to say in an attempt to deflect attention away from the issue of police violence, when the reality is they don't care about Chicago or police murdering unarmed Black people. And so when 50-plus women are murdered in Chicago, they were simply just counted amongst the other murders that took place in Chicago that particular year. The difference was that every year between 2001 and 2018, a string of murders were different than the usual gun deaths that make up a majority of the murders. These women had either been strangled or asphyxiated, not shot, not robbed, but murdered and dumped like garbage. Police say that the murders are not connected, but the coincidences are hard to ignore. How could so many women be murdered in similar ways and none of them be connected? Police do believe that most of the murders were committed by a man, and so there are either 50-plus men in Chicago who have strangled at least one woman and left her body in various locations miles apart, or there is a serial killer or killers out there responsible for these deaths. The fact that none of these murders have been solved also raises a ton of questions. In recent years, the murders of these women has been gaining more attention. 
Thanks to work done by journalism students at Roosevelt University in Chicago, we now know more about some of the victims. And last year, Discovery Plus premiered a three-part series called The Hunt for the Chicago Strangler, which featured the families of some of the victims. The attention has helped to make people more aware of these stories and the suspicion that a serial killer may be on the loose, but it still hasn't helped to bring closure to any of these cases. Many of the women who were murdered were known to be sex workers and drug users, and so that contributed to the lack of care about their murders. Their stories barely made the news, if at all, and journalists, including the students from Roosevelt University, were unable to track down many of the families of the victims. And so, sadly, their stories remain untold. We don't know who they really were or where they came from. We just know that someone stole their life from them and then threw them away like trash. For the victims whose families journalists were able to find, the years since their loved one was murdered has been a nightmare. And they say that the Chicago PD has done very little to help them find closure. Not all of these women who were murdered were involved in high-risk lifestyles, and yet they were killed and disposed of in the same way of those that were. And their murders are also unsolved. Now, there is some reporting out there that says these murders could have started as early as 1997. However, between 2001 and 2018, the number of women being found strangled or asphyxiated began to increase rapidly. The first woman in this gruesome pattern in 2001 was Angela Ford, a mother of two who was living on the south side of Chicago when she was found strangled in an abandoned building. Angela, according to her father, had grown up going to church and was a Girl Scout when she was a child. When she had children of her own, she wanted to raise them right. In his interview with Discovery Plus, Angela's father said that she wanted to raise her kids the way she had been raised. And her daughter Kiana said that Angela was a great mom who took her and her brother everywhere. But the day that they last saw her, she didn't take her children with her. Her daughter recalled to Discovery Plus that the day she last saw her mom alive and well, she was supposed to go to her and her brother's school to pick up their report cards. Kiana said that she and her brother asked if they could go with her, but Angela told them that they couldn't go. No one knows if Angela ever made it to pick up the report cards from the school. But on January 4th, 2001, several days after Angela was last seen, she was found strangled and barely clinging to life in an abandoned building less than two miles from where she and her children lived. Angela's father said that he remembers the police knocking on his door to tell him that Angela was in Cook County Hospital unconscious and that she had been strangled. Angela never woke up, and so she was never able to tell police what happened to her. Police knew that she had been sexually assaulted, but not much else. There's no information about what happened to Angela after she left home to go to the school. I'm assuming that it was broad daylight when she left since she was going to a school, but there doesn't seem to be any information about whether or not anyone ever saw Angela after she left home. Did she get into a car with someone she knew, or was she lured away by a stranger? 
Angela's family says that police, from the beginning, did very little to solve what happened to Angela. While Angela's family struggled to make sense of what happened, Angela remained in a coma. But over the next several months, more women were found strangled in similar ways to Angela. Just two months after Angela was found, 42-year-old Charlotte Day, also known as Charlotte Woods, was found strangled to death in a vacant lot. A search for information about Charlotte turns up nothing. Her name, like many, only appears amongst the names of victims in this string of murders. The next murder occurred 20 days later, in August 2001. On August 2nd, the body of 33-year-old Winfried Shines was found strangled to death. She was found in an alleyway behind a local clothing store called The Shop and Buy. Like Charlotte, no information exists about Winfrey either. A little over two weeks after Winfrey was found, another woman was found, and she too had been strangled. On August 22nd, someone walking down the street found the body of 52-year-old Brenda Coward in a vacant lot. In just eight months, four women had been found strangled, all within a relatively small area in Chicago. But no one seemed to be paying any attention to what was becoming a very disturbing pattern. The next victim was found two and a half months after Brenda. On November 5th, 2001, at around 4 a.m., the body of 41-year-old Elaine Bonita was found lying face-up on the curb on a block in the Logan Park neighborhood of Chicago. Elaine had been strangled and was partially clothed when she was found. Paramedics on the scene tried to revive Elaine, but she was pronounced dead. The final victim that year was 39-year-old Saudia Banks. Saudi was found strangled to death and found inside an empty apartment. She was found just three days after Christmas on December 28th. The total number of women found strangled by the end of 2001 was six. Two in abandoned buildings, two found in vacant lots, one in an alleyway, and one on a street. These women were being found mostly in outdoor locations, but... Of those victims, the one we know the most about is Angela, who had remained in a coma throughout 2001 after she was assaulted in January. As I tell this story, I have to keep in mind that I'm not talking about something that happened in the 60s or 70s or even the 80s. These women were being found dead all over Chicago in 2001. And it's hard to believe that this did not immediately raise an eyebrow. But these women were black and brown, living in low-income neighborhoods, and some of them had histories of sex work and drug use. So people didn't care for the most part, and neither did the police. The first victim that year, Angela, and the last victim, Saudia, were found less than two miles apart. In 2002, the murders continued. The first victim that year was found on February 16, 2002. 43-year-old Bessie Scott was found strangled to death inside an abandoned salon. Her body was also found two miles from where Angela was found the year before. 
Sadly, a year and a half after Angela was found unconscious after being strangled and sexually assaulted in an abandoned building, she died. Angela had never regained consciousness and had remained in a coma for the entire year and a half before she died. Despite her having been in a coma, Angela's family took her death hard. But in the time since she was brutally attacked and left for dead, police had made very little progress in Angela's case. Her father told Discovery Plus that Angela's case moved from detective to detective and that every time a new detective was assigned to the case, they knew less than the detective before them. Angela's family was frustrated by the way police were handling what happened to Angela. And with little being done to investigate Angela's murder, it wasn't long before her case went cold. Four months after Bessie Scott's murder in February 2002, yet another victim was found strangled. The second victim that year was 44-year-old Gwendolyn Williams. And thanks to the work done by the Unforgotten 51 Project, we do know some information about who Gwendolyn Williams was before she became a victim on this list. Gwendolyn was born on October 6, 1957 in Montgomery, Alabama. She was the oldest of six children. Gwendolyn and her family moved to Chicago's South Side in 1965. Growing up, according to her sisters, Gwendolyn was a loving, caring sister. And as the oldest, she took on the responsibility of helping and protecting her younger siblings. Her family spent time at church, both on Sundays and several days throughout the week. Gwendolyn, according to her sisters, loved to dance and she loved to cook. Her sister told the Unforgotten 51 Project that Gwendolyn always insisted on being the one to help their mom in the kitchen, and she would make everything from cornbread to collard greens and even chitlins. From the interviews Gwendolyn's family gave about her to both the Unforgotten Project and Discovery Plus docuseries, it seems like Gwendolyn had a happy childhood surrounded by love. As Gwendolyn and her siblings grew into adults, they remained close to each other, and Gwendolyn continued to be the protective older sister. She encouraged her younger siblings to stay on the right track. She wanted them to be successful so that they could have more in life. But sadly, at 44 years old, someone decided to take Gwendolyn from her family. On June 11, 2002, Gwendolyn's sister Sharon told the Unforgotten 51 Project that Gwendolyn had been at her home that night. Sharon had recently had surgery, and her big sister was there helping to care for her. Sharon said that she and Gwendolyn spent the night talking and watching movies in bed. Gwendolyn left her sister's house, and it was the last time that she would ever see her alive. The next morning, Sharon said that she received a call from the Chicago PD, and they delivered the devastating news. Her sister Gwendolyn had been murdered. On Wednesday, June 12, 2002, Gwendolyn's body was found behind a dollar store on the 4800 block of North Sheridan. Gwendolyn had been strangled, and she was covered in blood. She was also half-naked. The news shocked Gwendolyn's family. At 44 years old, they never imagined that they would lose her in such a brutal way. Like Angela, Gwendolyn's family says that she was not a sex worker, and so she was not living the kind of lifestyle that you would think would put her in danger. 
And yet Gwendolyn, like Angela and Charlotte and Bessie before her, had been murdered and thrown away. Investigators were able to obtain DNA from Gwendolyn's body, including semen and skin cells found under her nails. However, the samples were not immediately tested. An autopsy revealed that Gwendolyn did have drugs and alcohol in her system. I don't know what kind of drugs were found. I mean, it could have just been weed. But either way, it did not explain what happened to Gwendolyn after she left her sister's house. When Gwendolyn's body was found, she was the eighth woman found strangled to death, all within miles of each other. The similarities were glaring, but... Because of the lack of reporting around many of these crimes, it's not clear if police at that time had any suspicion that these murders may be connected. After Gwendolyn's murder, four more women were murdered that year. All of them were strangled. The deaths were piling up, and it was only the beginning. The women in Chicago were clearly in danger. Someone was hunting them. The question was, who and why? Do you want to hear something that I found kind of shocking? Since 2020, two out of three people report feeling extreme stress, and it's affecting their sleep and affecting their overall health. These days, stress seems to hit us from every possible angle, in any environment, at any time day after day. Unfortunately, all that stress can have a serious impact on your immune, digestive, respiratory, and cardiovascular system. And, of course, it can do a number on your cognitive and mental health. Wouldn't it be nice if you just had an off switch? An easy way to reboot and reset so that you could quickly find a calm, clear, and positive way to handle whatever life throws at you. Enter Just Calm the breakthrough new stress and mood support formula from Just Thrive. Yes, the same Just Thrive that produces our favorite probiotic. Here's what makes Just Calm so radically different from anything that you may have tried before. It's the first retail available supplement to feature the proprietary psychobiotic strain known as BL1714. Psychobiotics are a new class of products that utilize beneficial bacteria to support your best mood, cognition, and emotional health. And BL1714 is the most heavily researched and scientifically verified strain available. In fact, numerous studies have shown that BL1714 can be an absolute powerhouse in the fight for your mental well-being because it quickly promotes a healthy response to everyday stress, encourages a steady, serene, and balanced mood, drives mental clarity, focus, and alertness, and even supports great energy and optimal sleep. Imagine being able to turn down the noise and turn up the calm with one addition to your daily routine that takes you seconds to implement. And it's all natural. This is true stress management support that's built for the modern world. So bring on the insufferable rush hour traffic, the deadlines and mounting pressure at work, and the relentless miles-long to-do list. With Just Calm, you'll have the power to take on the day, feeling cool, collected, and in control. Pair with Just Thrive Probiotic, 
This is one dynamic duo for proven gut immune mood support to help you live your best life. If you're ready to up your game and feel your best, you can get 15% off both Just Thrive Probiotic and Just Calm or any other of their scientifically proven products when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code GIRLGONE at checkout. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In January 2001, the first victim in what would ultimately become a vicious, brutal pattern was found. Angela Ford was found strangled and clinging to life in an abandoned building just a few blocks from her home on the south side of Chicago. She never regained consciousness after being found and spent a year and a half in a coma before she died. After Angela's brutal attack, between 2001 and 2002, more and more women had been found murdered by strangulation and discarded in various locations miles apart from each other. Now, while most of the victims in the pattern were Black women, at least nine of them were white. After Gwendolyn's murder, the next two victims were white women who were the first white women in this pattern. On October 14, 2002, the body of 19-year-old Jody Grissom was found behind two garbage cans in an alleyway. Jody's father said that she had been a good girl growing up, but she had recently become addicted to heroin and that her life had been pretty much spiraling out of control because of her addiction. Seven months before her death, Jody had been arrested for prostitution. Now, although Jody's murder deviated from the pattern because she was white, her murder and the disposal of her body was consistent with the other victims before her. Less than two weeks after Jody's body was found, the body of Lorraine Harris was found on August 25th, 2002. Lorraine was 36 years old when she was found strangled in an alleyway. With so many of the women who had been murdered having histories of drug abuse and sex work, it's not hard to believe that the police were not prioritizing finding their killer or killers. The fifth victim found that year was 33-year-old Deli Jones. Deli, too, had a pretty bad drug habit that had led her to lose her children and into sex work to support her habit. However, in the weeks before her murder, Deli had entered a rehab after a police officer had arrested her. And instead of taking her to jail, he issued her a ticket and recommended that she go to a rehab facility. In an interview with Southside Weekly, the officer that arrested Deli said that Deli was crying when she got in his car, begging him not to take her to jail. He said that he treated sex workers like human beings and realized that it was more of a necessity than a choice for most of the women on the street. Deli took the officer's advice, and she checked herself into the Genesis house, 
a rehab center for sex workers that's located on the north side of Chicago. Southside Weekly also spoke to Delhi's sponsor at the Genesis House, and she said that Delhi was a really sweet person and that everybody liked Delhi. Delhi, however, struggled with her addiction. She just couldn't let the drugs go. Her sponsor said that one night, Delhi left the Genesis House and never came back. Her sponsors told Southside Weekly that she begged Delhi not to go, but on September 7th, 2002, Delhi left anyway. And that night, her body was found in a vacant garage inside an abandoned building. Delhi, like the others, had been strangled. But because Delhi was a sex worker with a history of drug abuse, little time was spent investigating her murder. Her sponsor said that the police never came to the Genesis house to even investigate her murder. The final victim of 2002 was 37-year-old Celeste Jackson, who was found strangled in an alley on December 20th, 2002. The total number of victims by the end of 2002 had risen to 12. But police, nor the media at the time, seemed to notice that the pattern was occurring. Even if they didn't think that these murders were caused by a serial killer, at that point, they would have had to admit that this was a disturbing coincidence, and perhaps the public should be aware. But the murders continued. And most of the murders were barely making headlines. If there had been one serial killer responsible for the murders of all of these women, then Nancy Walker's murder would have been an escalation in their behavior. On January 28, 2003, Nancy Walker went missing. She was supposed to meet her sister for lunch, but she never showed up. And two days later, her family reported her missing. Nancy Walker was born in Birmingham, Alabama on August 15, 1947. Nancy was the oldest daughter in her family of six girls. Her family also spoke with the Unforgotten 51 Project about Nancy growing up. And her mother said in that interview that Nancy was a busy child from the time she was six months old and she was getting into everything. From an early age, Nancy had known what she wanted to do with her life. Her mother said that at just eight years old, Nancy knew that she wanted to be an entrepreneur. Her mother said that she really wanted to become an entrepreneur so that she would never have to work for anyone else. According to the Unforgotten 51 Project, Nancy attended elementary school in Alabama, but in 1961, her family migrated to Chicago. Nancy's early years are very similar to Gwendolyn's, whose family also moved to Chicago in the 60s from Alabama. And that's because during that time, many families were leaving the South and moving to cities in the North to escape the racism and segregation in the South. Once Nancy and her family moved to Chicago, they settled in a housing project on the South Side. Her sister recalled that life for them in the projects was good, but it was just a quote-unquote pit stop for her mom. She said her mom was determined to move them out of the projects. And she did. A few years after moving into the projects, Nancy's mother purchased a home for her family. In high school, Nancy was captain of the cheerleading squad. 
Her love for dance made her a natural. Since she was a little girl, Nancy had been in love with dance. Her sister said that her favorite style of dance was modern dance and that she also had studied jazz and ballet. After she graduated from high school, Nancy went on to attend Columbia University. There, Nancy decided to major in accounting according to the Unforgotten 51 project. And although dance was Nancy's passion, she chose to major in something that would offer her a little bit more stability and longevity in a career. After completing her college degree, Nancy went on to become a successful entrepreneur. She took her love for dance and her business knowledge and opened up her own exercise studio where she would teach yoga and jazzercise. Nancy's lifelong dream of being an entrepreneur was coming true. Nancy eventually purchased a beauty salon and a trucking company. And she also got involved in real estate and became a landlord after purchasing five residential buildings. Her family said that they were not surprised by Nancy's success. Nancy had been clear about who she wanted to be and the life that she wanted to live, and she worked hard to make that happen. Nancy had created a good life, and her family was proud of the woman that she had become. And as the eldest daughter, she was a shining example for her younger sisters. But when Nancy, who was 55 years old at the time, disappeared, Everything that she had worked for and the life that she built was destroyed. On January 28, 2003, Nancy and her sister Myrna had plans to have lunch together. Now, Myrna says that, that that morning, Nancy had called her to let her know that she was on her way downtown to meet her for lunch. Myrna said that that day, she waited for Nancy to show up, but when she didn't, she knew that something was wrong. She started to call Nancy's phone several times, but she got no answer. Myrna continued to try to reach Nancy throughout the rest of that day and into the night, but all of her calls were still going unanswered. The next day, Myrna started trying again to call Nancy, but still, Nancy was not answering the phone. Myrna said that she spoke to her sister Nancy every morning and every night, and so this behavior was not normal for Nancy at all. Myrna told the Unforgotten 51 Project that even though she was concerned about her sister, she didn't want to be too alarmed. She figured that she would get in touch with her soon. But when Thursday came and Nancy didn't show up to the dance class that she taught, Myrna knew something was very, very wrong. Now, after she found out that Nancy hadn't show up to teach her class, Myrna decided to go over to her sister's house. But Nancy was not there. And Myrna could tell that she hadn't been home in a few days. However, Nancy's cell phone was inside her house. Now, at that point, Nancy's family decided to contact the police and file a missing persons report. But Nancy's family said that the police didn't seem to be concerned that Nancy was missing. They said that the police told them to wait until Monday and then call back. According to them, police were treating them or treating Nancy's case as if she was someone who just decided to walk away from her life. 
they didn't consider the fact that Nancy had no reason to disappear and that she was a business owner with multiple ties to her community. And why would she have just left when she had made plans to meet her sister for lunch? Now, also according to the family, the Chicago PD did nothing. They did nothing to help find Nancy in the days after she went missing. And despite pleas from her family, the local media did not give Nancy's case very much attention at all. Around the same time that Nancy had disappeared in Chicago, the national media was focused on the case of Lacey Peterson, who had been missing from Modesto, California. And in Chicago, hundreds of miles away from Modesto, it was Lacey's story that appeared on the front page, while Nancy's story was on page 57. For seven long weeks, Nancy's family searched for her, but there was no sign of Nancy anywhere. But on March 19th, 2003, their search came to a gruesome end. A road crew who was working along the I-95 interstate in Chicago found several plastic garbage bags scattered along the interstate. Inside the bags was the dismembered body parts of Nancy Walker. Inside three garbage bags were Nancy's head in one bag and her arms and her legs in the others. Her torso, however, was not among the discarded bags, and it was never located. An autopsy would later reveal that Nancy had been strangled and beaten before she was dismembered. Even after Nancy's remains were found scattered along the interstate, her family says that police still failed to prioritize finding out what happened to Nancy and now who killed her. Nancy's family had no idea what had happened to her the day that she vanished, but they would later learn that she had been at her salon earlier that day. According to Myrna, in an interview done just this past June with Fox 32 in Chicago, she said that she learned that her sister Nancy had been at her salon that day, and witnesses who were there said that they saw Nancy leave the salon and get into a black van with two unidentified men, and they never saw her return. According to Myrna, Nancy would not have gotten into a car with strangers, and so perhaps she knew the men, but just hadn't told her sister about them because maybe they seemed quote-unquote shady. And because there is no information that exists about the police investigation of Nancy's death, it's unknown if they ever tried to follow up on this lead or any other leads. But Nancy's family said that in the years following her murder, there has been no communication from detectives and that eventually they dropped the case and told Nancy's family that it was cold. Nancy's cause of death was consistent with the other previous murders. However, the fact that she was dismembered and placed alongside the interstate was different. Nancy's case never did get much media attention, even after her body was found the way it was. There was not much outrage about a 55-year-old entrepreneur being murdered after missing for seven weeks. But the murders of women in Chicago continued. 
2003 was the deadliest year in this pattern, with eight women in total murdered by strangulation. The next bodies that were found were found on the same day. Both Tarika Jones and Linda Green were found strangled on May 20th, 2003. Tarika was 30 years old when she was found dead in the basement of an abandoned building on the 1500 block of South St. Louis. 11 miles away, Linda, who was 42 years old, was found dead in an alleyway in the 6800 block of Chicago Avenue. And no information exists about either of their murders, despite the fact that both women were found on the exact same day. 20-year-old Rosenda Brasio was the next woman who was found strangled. And her body was found in an alleyway on August 14th, 2003. And two days later, on August 16th, 29-year-old Latani Killer's body was found in a garbage can. Latanya was a young mother who was living in Chicago's West Side, and she was last seen by a neighbor on a bus that Friday. Two days later, a neighbor was taking out the trash when he found a sneaker lying outside of a trash can. And when he looked inside, he found a body wearing the other shoe. The body was determined to be that of Latanya, and she had been strangled. The last of the three victims were 21-year-old Latricia Hall and 38-year-old Lucette Mary Thomas, both found strangled to death on October 15, 2003. Latricia was found in a vacant lot, Lucette in an abandoned building. The last victim was 36-year-old Ethel Emerson. She was found dead in an abandoned building on December 26. Now, if there is an article about any of the murders that took place that year, none of them make any mention of the other murders. By the end of 2003, there were now 20 women whose cause of death had been strangulation. All of them, with the exception of Nancy Walker, had been found in similar locations, abandoned buildings, alleyways, vacant lots. Some of the women had histories of sex work and drug abuse, but Not all of them did. Most of them were Black women over the age of 30, but not all of them. It's hard to imagine that someone didn't notice that something was wrong. Even if they thought that each of the 20 women had been killed by a different person, that still should have been alarming. Also, the fact that none of these murders had been solved, not one, should have been alarming. Their lack of investigation of these murders and the lack of attention from the media meant that most people outside of that immediate community didn't even know that these murders were happening. Three years, 20 women murdered brutally and no arrests. It seems unbelievable that that many women could be murdered in a relatively small area and no one is being held responsible. Sadly, however, these 20 murders were only the tip of the iceberg. And before anyone started to pay attention to what was really happening in Chicago, dozens more women would be murdered. 
Join us next week for part two of The Murdered Women of Chicago, where we continue to tell the stories of the more than 51 women who've been murdered since 2001. We find out when it finally was discovered that these murders may in fact be connected and where the investigations stand today. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. It also helps our show grow. As always, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook.